this morning, uh, we're going to begin a three-part series that certainly could be much longer than three, but I know that Colin will be eager to return to preaching and teaching when he gets back, and so we're going to make this a little shorter than it maybe should be. Um, today's message alone could take months to go through, so if you notice the title of the sermon, is the family in God's covenant, right? What does the family look like in the Bible? And so this is a huge, huge undertaking. So I want to point out that we're going to fly at this not from probably 30,000 feet, but 60,000 feet. We're going to look at this from an overview this morning, um, much thinner, so to speak, in terms of the depth that we could go. And so I encourage you this morning, if you're... Um, more that you felt could have been said, I am certainly sure that is true, and I hope that you will keep in mind that um, this will not be exhaustive at what we're looking at. But the reason for this series is this church is changing, and I mean that in a good way. Um, there are people who've been here longer than I have, but when I came six years ago, there was my family and I think one other family that had children. And at the time, I only had two children, and so... Soon our former pastor, Ryan, started to try to catch up and compete with me. And he was having children at a breakneck speed. And then more people were coming and they were having children. And so we've had a plethora of children not only come, but also be born now in the congregation of members. And so this has prompted us to think about what are we going to do moving forward? Our church certainly is growing. Our church is getting bigger, not only in terms of internal numbers, but new people joining. And so sometimes it's helpful to remind ourselves of what we do and think based on certain theology. And so this is a series we wanted to talk about as a congregation of how we view family within this church. So how do we view it scripturally? How do we view it at home? And then how do we view it coming together here on the Lord's Day? And so just to let you know it, um, from where I'm coming from, this has always been a passion of mine. I'm a firm believer in fellowship within the church. I think it's something that's pivotal and vital to our lives as individuals and our lives collectively. And something that I have been working through for years and years, and then has been even more amplified lately since I've found myself becoming an um, adherence to covenant theology. And so, with that being said, it's, it's even more indoctrinated me in the view of the need of corporate family worship. And so this morning, we're going to look at that. And so we want to first build our base. Our base is, what does God do with family in His Word? How does God interact? How does He engage with family in the Old Testament, the New Testament, and what that means for us today? And so we want to look at that. And so we're first going to begin in the Old. We're going to try to work our way through some of the Old Testament examples of family. And again, there was many more to choose from. And then we're going to eventually end up in the New Testament and look at the gracious expansion that God gives to family in the New Covenant. So before we begin, pray with me. Father, we are thankful for family. We're thankful for the fact that you have instituted marriage, that you have instituted the family. I pray that as a church, we would be 
family-focused. Not just in narrow senses that keep us separated, but in the grand scheme of your church global. So, Father, I pray that as we go through these scriptures, that it would not be my voice that is speaking, but it would be the truth of your word and the spirit convicting. So, God, I pray that all the things I say would pass away, but your truths would remain. In your name we pray. Amen. This morning, we're going to start in the very beginning. We're going to go to Genesis, and we're going to look at the command God gives men and women. We're going to be in chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 26 through 29. Starting in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them roll over the fish of the sea, and the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, and every other living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food from you. Here we get the creation mandate instituted by God, right? God says to Adam and Eve, you are to be fruitful and multiply, right? And then he gives them a list of several other things to do with that, right? They're first to be fruitful and multiply, and then they're to what? Rule over the earth. They're rule over the beast. They're rule over every um, vegetation. And so we see first one of the things that God institutes for humanity is to be family-minded, right? Be fruitful and multiply comes first. There's a lot of things God could have said to do. There's a big world to be subdued, a big world to be conquered, right? Animals to be named. But God starts with most foundational to them, which is to be in union as man and wife and be fruitful, multiply. And so he points this out to them. And this is a theme and a thread that is still picked up throughout all of Scripture. And so there are several different places in the New Testament where Jesus will reach back and he will say, you've heard it said, right? He said, but I say. Or there's certain places where Jesus will take something and expand it. So for example, the reason we don't celebrate the Passover only is because we understand the Passover to be a shadow of something better that's coming, which is Christ's sacrifice for us. And so there are multiple times when Jesus reaches back into the Old Testament covenant, the promises and the things he's told those people, and he puts it in the new covenant perspective. But stop and think, where do we see a new creation mandate in the New Testament? To be fruitful and multiply is carried over. It's never changed in a sense, right? Jesus never changes the family union. And we're going to look at that verse a little bit later, but I want to point this out, that this be fruitful and multiply that we read in Genesis stays with all of humanity. Right? Christ never undoes what the triune God does here in the beginning of the garden. 
There's no longer ever a place where Jesus says, that whole be fruitful, multiply. You don't have to do that anymore. You can simply drop that. It's not important, right? In fact, Paul goes so far to say that it's a unique gifting you have to have to be single, right? He has to specifically go and talk about that. This is abnormal. In fact, it's just something that's spiritually called out upon a unique person in their situation. So we want to see this this morning as we go through that it's rooted in Genesis and God continues to point to this when Jesus comes in throughout Scripture. This is the mandate for humans. And so we see this being laid in Genesis 2. So go with me just a little bit further, okay? I'm going to read it. You don't have to go there necessarily if you don't want to, but we're going to go to Genesis 9, and we're going to see what he says to Noah, right? So God brings the flood. Noah and his family are saved through the ark. And he says to Noah, and God blessed Noah, his sons, and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Verse 2, the fear of the Lord, the fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and every bird of the sky. With everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand, they are giving. So we see even due to the nature of sin, the relationship from, in terms of animal and vegetation, has changed, right? We know that because God tells men, right, from the sweat of your brow, you will bring forth crops. But notice what hasn't changed with Noah, be fruitful and multiply is still the command that he tells Noah and his family. And so then we're going to just think about that in that sense of how does that apply to being human? Now, obviously, there again, this is a situation where we could talk about multiple um, things. We don't have time to go into each and every one. But... A key essence of being human is to have a family, right? And so certainly we want to lament with those and we want to pray with those who are not able or who are struggling. But as a church, we want to be people who are convicted that this is something we want to encourage with our own members, with our own young people. I think too often we take on the world's view, right? And we say, hey, first you need to go subdue the land. You need to go subdue the plants. You need to go subdue these things, right? We just call them careers now. Go get yourself a career. Go do these things that are more important. And then once you've gotten your life kind of figured out, then circle back to marriage. And then you can even think about having kids and those kind of things. Um, this is something that we want to notice that God doesn't put in that order, right? The first thing constantly is to be fruitful, multiply. It's to call the marriage. And so as the church, and when we read through scripture, we should be convinced and convicted that marriage is a foundational element to being human, not a capstone. It's not an accomplishment that we receive on our life. And it's something that makes us who we are. It's something that sanctifies us. I was talking with a um, newlywed a while back, and they were saying the one thing that marriage has taught them is how actually broken they are sinfully. By themselves, they thought they were pretty impressive. But when you have to be around someone 24-7 they realized they were pretty flawed. And so those are foundational things that God uses to sanctify us to be like him. And so like he told Noah, be fruitful, multiply. As a church, we want to be mindful of that, and we want to have a theology that represents God's proclamation. And so we see that being laid down, 
And then we see the Bible begin to give multiple examples of interaction with children. So this morning for our call of worship, we read Proverbs chapter 1. And in Proverbs chapter 1, in multiple places, it refers constantly back to this notion of children need discipline. Children need knowledge, right? Son, heed the words I am saying to grow wise, so you will not perish as those who do not heed. For the beginning of wisdom is fear in the Lord, but foolishness rejects this. So for example, right in Proverbs chapter 1, it says in verse 3, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge and discretion. And so we have a whole book that constantly goes back to and says, my son, my child, hear these words, heed what I am saying. And we see this is a vital role within the family unit that God has established for parents to look into. And so we see that children are to be raised in the faith. Turn with me to Proverbs 22, 6. A very famous verse. Some of you may know it, even if you don't know the reference, right? You've heard it enough. But Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. These are pivotal verses that point to the duties that the Bible places on the family in raising children. And so it's one of the, it's one of the greatest things um, we see in scriptures, this notion that the word of God does not fail in the regards to um, us being able to trust that God will persevere. And so we see in this verse, for example, this notion, right, that parents are to constantly be thinking of the children's relation to scripture. How do they greet them in the morning, right? When they're in the midday, when they lie down. How are we as the family unit interacting with our children? How are mothers and fathers and aunts and uncles and grandma and grandpas, how are they working with that child to raise them up in the truth? And this is a constant theme throughout scripture. Over and over, we see this idea that the family is responsible for the raising of their children. And it's a terrifying thing in a good way because it puts a lot of responsibility on the parents. It puts a lot of responsibility on the family unit to ensure that this is happening. We jump forward a little bit and we go to Ephesians. We're going to go to Ephesians 6, 4. And we're going to see this is picked up by the New Testament. And continued. Chapter 6, we're going to start in 1. Children, obey your parents to the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in discipline and instruction of the Lord. Here we see again this give and take, so to speak, that children should learn that to obey their parents is good. Why? Because it honors 
God, number one. But number two, it comes with a promise. So we see a promise is already being instituted, right? In the Old Testament for children, that there is rewards that come with following and obeying the parents. There are rewards that come from being a good parent. Being a good parent is hard work. It's not easy. I often fell all the time. My parents failed many times, but they worked hard. And by God's good graces, I am who I am today because of them. And we see this is being carried on in the New Testament. Right? Fathers, do not promote, provoke your children to anger. It's hard being a parent. It's hard being in a family and having kids and not getting frustrated with them and not getting to where you become embittered, right, or petty and bringing them to anger. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So again, the Bible constantly calls us to this, this notion that families are to do this with their children. They're to discipline and instruct in the ways of the faith. They're to bring them up in the faith. One of the, one of the worst tragedies we've had, I think, in this country in American Christianity is we've done a terrible job at that. Right? If you ask people who grew up in youth group what they remember most, it's probably not the deep theology they got. Right? It's often what we've come to call fun and entertainment. And so certainly I'm not opposed to that, but I'm also weary of it. Right? We have to be careful in the sense of what are we trying to do as a church and as a family with our children? Turn to Colossians with me. Colossians 3, 18 through 21. Colossians 3, 18 through 21. Wives, be subject to your husbands. It is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exacerbate your children so that they will not lose heart. The Bible, again, constantly speaks to the family in multiple ways. And there's certain places we can certainly look at the relationship between husbands and wives. But constantly the Bible points to children to be obedient to their parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. But for a child to be obedient, they have to know the rules. They have to know the reasons why they do what they do. And so as Christians, we have to be careful that we don't simply make a rule of a list of do's and don'ts, but we make a list of grace and mercies that our children follow and understand, that this will bring grace into their life. And when they do sin, we will have mercy because of Christ. But we're there to be obedient in the scriptures, for it's well-pleasing to the Lord. So sometimes it's hard for us, but you look back when you were young and rebellious, you weren't very pleasing to the Lord with your parents, right? But we see the constantly, this relationship is give and take. And so one of the places that I think is pivotal to understanding why scripture is so pro-children in that sense is to look at Jesus himself. So turn with me to Matthew 19. So, so far we've looked at several verses, right? Proof texts, if you will. Train up your child, listen to your parents, okay? Make sure that they are um, raised up right and they will return to you. Remember the promise to obey your mother and father. Your life will be long. All these things have been pointing to the reasons 
or um, excuse me, the, the results of that. But look at Jesus' re- interaction with children. And this is a section I've been re- working through recently as I've come to understand and, and uh, find myself believing in covenant theology. And this is a really pivotal place for, I think, children. So chapter 19, starting in verse 1. I'm sorry, not 1. Um, we're going to start in... Yeah, we're starting one. We're going to get a little context. When Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea among the Jordan. And large crowds followed him there, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered, said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning created them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become flesh? So no longer are the two one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And so just to make a quick note here, again, here we have Jesus pointing all the way back to Genesis 1, right? To the creation mandate. And so Jesus himself reaffirms that teaching. Be fruitful and multiply in this section. Jesus has a clear chance to clarify many things here if they are in contradiction to what was taught in the past in that particular passage, but he doesn't. He reaffirms them and establishes them again. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses prevented, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, is it not better than to marry? But he said to them, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born this way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept this. So here Jesus has his big teaching on marriage, right, and divorce. And he points out these key foundations of male and female and uh, what are the grounds that we're allowed to leave a spouse, what are the grounds for not, right? He points to this big section, but notice what follows immediately after, starting in 13. Then some children were brought to him so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. Um, Lay his hands, right, is what? It's a blessing, right? It's, It's a form of blessing. So Jesus calling children to him to bless them, okay? So that is what we need to read there. Sometimes I think we, we misread Scripture because we're so, we've heard so many times, right? But Jesus is saying, bring the children to me so that I may bless them and pray over them. And the disciples rebuke them, right? They rebuke the people bringing the children, okay? We tend to do this a lot, and I try not to do this in my life, and it's very challenging, right? So someone comes to see you, they're in crisis, and your kids are playing, right? Now, sometimes it's okay to ask them to leave the room, But sometimes we're too quick to dismiss children. Hey, we're trying to do serious things here. Can you please get out? Hey, we're we're trying to focus. I I don't need that distraction. Get the kid out of here. Right? That's what they're really doing. They have a good intention if you think about it, right? Jesus is of serious business. He's got serious things to do. Right? He waited until he was 33 to start his ministry. There's a lot to accomplish during these these few short years he's going to have a public ministry. We don't need to worry about kids at this time. We've got bigger fish to fry, so to speak. But what does Jesus say, right? Jesus said, let the children alone, leave the children alone, and do not hinder them from coming to me. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. 
After laying his hands on them, he departed from there. And so certainly, right, there's a parallel to be drawn here in terms of um, the faith of a child, right? And that's what Jesus actually talks about in Luke 18, which I'm going to go there. And if you'll listen, you can certainly turn there. But if you would like to listen, you may. So in Luke 18, we have the same example going on. But listen to how Jesus says things. But notice what Luke picks up here in verse 15. And they were bringing even babies, which is infants, to him so that he would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking those people. When Jesus called to them, saying, Permit the children to come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. So here we have two things pivotally going on. Jesus points to the fact that we have to have faith like a child in him, right? To trust in him simply like a child would trust an adult. But that's not all he's doing. Okay, he's pointing to the fact that the kingdom belongs to children. Okay, it makes no sense for Jesus to be holding children and say, this is just an analogy or a symbol. I'm not actually talking about this real child. I'm just using them as a prop to talk about adults and their faith. Right? No, we know that's not what's going on because Jesus says he was laying his hands on them. He was blessing them. He was praying for them. So Christ takes a view of children of being in important in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. So children are to be valued within the New Testament, within the kingdom of God. We are to value children as a church. And this is what Jesus points to here, that it takes more than just simply saying, listen, kids are great, but they're not really needed. They're not really important to in terms of what we're trying to accomplish as a church in this town, in this city, in this world. They're great, but they're not really needed. That's not the way Jesus takes the view of children, right? He says, bring them to me. Let me pray over them. Let me bless them. And so in the new heavens and new earth, the kingdom of God, the blessing is to children and to the biological families. But we know that God is gracious and he extends it even more. So in the new covenants, the family now grows. No longer is it just simply as I've been talking about for the last two points biological flesh and blood. It is expanded greatly beyond the biological family. Turn with me to Genesis 17, 1 through 10. And we're going to look at the promise of the family units to come to greater than just simply flesh and blood. So in Genesis chapter 17, we have the covenant of circumcision given to Abraham. Now when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but you shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. I will give to your descendants after you the land of your soul journeys, to all the land of Canaan, for the everlasting possession, I will be their God. 
God said for that Abraham, now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants, after you throughout this generation. So we have here the promise of Abraham's descendants, right, will be forever. They will inherit great things. They will inherit the land of Canaan, okay? And so often we tend to think this simply, for some people, I should say correctly, this simply refers to the nation of Israel, right? This is God setting up the nation of Israel. But we know that's not true because of multiple verses we read in the New Testament. So in John 8, it simply, Jesus says, Abraham saw my day and was glad, right? Abraham saw this coming, this day when his descendants would be fulfilled in Jesus. In Hebrews 8, or excuse me, Hebrews 11, 8 through 12, we see that the promise is fulfilled, not just simply physically. So certainly it was filled physically in the land of Israel, but it's fulfilled in the promise of faith as we read in verses 8 through 12 in chapter 11. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going to a place which he had received for inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So Abraham certainly had a physical promise, right, with physical land. But the Bible points to the fact that he knew there was a better kingdom coming. There was eternal kingdom coming. They had eternal promises, eternal lands, eternal descendants would be with him. And that's what he was looking for. So even though God blessed him immensely, physically, right, he was able to know that there's something better coming. This is not what God has promised me. There's something greater on the horizon. There's something more to look forward to. And this is the expansion of God's kingdom that we see. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 3 verses 6 Starting in verse 6. Even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are faith who are the sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Here we see this radical promise God made thousands and thousands of years ago to Abraham fulfilled in the new covenant. The family of God is radically expanded. No longer is it simply just flesh and blood who receive the benefits and the graces and the mercy of God, but now it is all who are in the faith are children of Abraham. This is wonderful and fantastic because now we find ourselves in a much larger family. But also we find ourselves in a much more responsible position. And so as Americans, we are terribly individualistic. And it's to a fault sometimes, right? Don't tell me how to raise my kids. I won't tell you how to raise your kids, right? Um, but the Bible doesn't speak necessarily in those terms. It talks about us being a body, right? Hands and feet, 
being of one Lord, one baptism, one spirit. It's a blessing that we truly should seek and nourish in the church. No longer is anyone an orphan. No longer is anyone childless. We are all family in Christ because the blessing has been extended. And so often we forget that. We forget that's the answer to the world. In our country right now, we have a big problem with divisiveness, being divided. There's no solution outside the church. If you think of each and every person in this room, which we're missing a bunch, but even still, the difference in complexities in each one of our lives and upbringings and struggles and trials, we really shouldn't be hanging out. There's too much of us in terms of differences that should keep us from being together, right? But it's only in Christ that those differences are brought together, we're able to be actual family. And so with this expansion, as we go forward looking at children, as we go forward looking at what children are to do or how child rearing should be done at home and how child rearing should be done in the congregation, the one strand that's going to connect this and the next and the following message is this. We have a responsibility to one another in Christ to be a family. It's not easy. You're messy. I'm messy. I will be annoying. You will be annoying. Life is complicated. But that's what we're called to. And so I think it's going to be one of the great tragedies when we stand before the great white throne of God and he looks at our lives in faith and he says, where have you fallen short? That's going to be one of the things we've often done too much of. We've often been isolated instead of embracing and engaging because it's more comfortable for us not to. It's easier to not be involved in someone's life. But that's not what God calls us to do. He doesn't call us to have neat and proper and trimmed lives. He calls us to have lives of connectedness, lives of unity in the spirit and truth. And so this morning, we want to remind ourselves of that. That the Bible points to the value of, of creation of children since the beginning. It reminds us that it's a wonderful duty to raise children upright. But then the new covenant calls us to partake in that for everyone involved, not just simply our own flesh and blood. And so this morning, as we look at the scripture, we see the foundation of the importance of children in our congregation. Children are not simply something, simply something to be tolerated during a service, They're not simply something to be pushed aside for our convenience. And so as we go forward, that's what we're going to look at doing. How do we engage children in home and how should we think about engaging them as a congregation?